Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 276 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Adam Savage. He's the former co-host of the Discovery Channel series Mythbusters, and he currently helps run the technology website Tested.com. He's also worked on special effects for major films such as The Matrix Reloaded and Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new podcast, Sci-Fi 25 Origin Stories, which features interviews with many of the biggest names in science fiction and entertainment, including Neil Gaiman, Nadia Korafor, Ron Moore, and Jonathan Frakes. And now here's our interview with Adam Savage. All right, so we're here with Adam Savage. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, so your new podcast is called Sci-Fi 25 Origin Stories. So how'd that come about? Uh, Sci-Fi is turning 25 years old this year, and they wanted to, they, they wanted to build a, a podcast series that tried to be comprehensive, as comprehensive as you could be within reason, uh, looking at the history of sci-fi as a genre um, from the viewpoint of creators and from fans. Uh, and they reached out to me. I, I love this idea so much. Science fiction has meant so much to me over the years uh, that the minute it got mentioned to me, I was like, yeah, I'm in. I totally know. I know what I want to do. I know how I want to do it. Um, and sci-fi themselves were an amazing partner in, in both uh, coming up with the overall thrust of the interviews and really contributing some amazing guest ideas that hadn't occurred to me um, and working with me to build that list. As you can imagine, a lot of these people we were interviewing very bu- are very busy people. Um, so there are some people that we missed because they're too darn busy. Um, there are some people that showed up at the, uh, you know, at the 11th hour that we realized, oh, let's get them, and we did. Um, I was lucky enough to get a couple of interviews done at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a kind of a record timeline as well, because I think we, we came up with this in June and we were wrapped by, uh, by mid August, which is honestly for what we had to do an astoundingly short timeline. (laughs) And a bunch of these people were people that you knew well, were kind of friends of yours. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, when you want to talk about the history of sci-fi, of course you want to talk to, uh, people like Rick Baker and Jonathan Frakes and Neil Gaiman, um, these are all folks who are who are good friends of mine. Um, but it is not it, something I have learned as an interviewer is there's nothing simpler about interviewing a friend than a stranger. Um, in fact, there are some pitfalls to it because uh, a friendship is different than an interview. Uh, you talk about different things. Um, and so I have learned over the years to approach even interviews with close friends of mine like Neil Gaiman. Um, not as a friend, but as an interviewer in the interest of engendering a conversation that the, that the listener can really participate in. Mm-hmm. So how many people were involved in this? Because it sounds like maybe you had some people helping you research the questions and some editing or things like that. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was brought in by Sci-Fi. They gave me a wonderful producer. Um, and the questions came from three sources. Obviously I had a, a, a list of questions that I thought were going to be uh, good ones to ask in the interview. Sci-fi had their own questions that they wanted me to hit. 
Uh, and then I also brought in my uh, my managing editor of Tested, Norm Chan, uh, to take a, a, a separate look than me at each of these interview subjects and come up with his own question. And for me, that was almost the best part of this process because Norm's view on things is so comprehensive and so different than mine. And it lended this really wonderful perspective to each interview. I mean, it's like, you know, as an interviewer, it's like if you could have your set of questions you think about the direction the interview goes, but someone could give you a new question and it opens up this whole new vista of what's possible uh, in terms of where the interview could go. And that's, that's kind of what Norm's research gave to me in this. And I heard you say that he's really a big hardcore science fiction fan when it comes to, to books and things, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Norm, yeah, Norm is as big a science geek as I am, if not more. And being, I think, almost 20 years younger than me, he's got one of those fresh brains that retains <laughs> all of its information. So uh, his ability to cross-reference his own version of IMDb in his head is quite remarkable. So how long were the actual interviews you, you did? Because they, they've all been interview, um, edited down to about 30 minutes, right? They have. And uh, that was the one thing I really wish we could have gone on even longer. Uh, each interview was about 60 minutes. Um, with our goal to really boil it into the highlights. Um, I, you know, and that, I like that format. I like being able to ramble. I mean, I know that for the John Knoll interview, for instance, John and I got way into the weeds <laughs> talking about the, the specific mechanics of, uh, of composite uh, film printers that Industrial Light and Magic basically invented, used for 30 years, and then mothballed when digital technology came online, uh, optical printers. And at some point, I remember my producer, Jennifer, holding up a card that said, stop talking about these technical details. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. So, I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is there are a couple of things that come up over and over in these interviews that you ask people about. And one of them is kind of the lack of respect for science fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. Could you talk about why that's something you care about? And kind of, do you have any thoughts about the different, um, ex- opinions about that that the different guests expressed? Yeah, well, it's it's a fascinating thing culturally, right? Science fiction is clearly a an important genre for our culture. It's important as evidenced by the fact that it is a billions of dollars of of, of money gets spent in 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 absorbing and. Uh, 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 enjoying content, whether it's on television, in movies, in books, in comic books, uh, even in immersive VR and video games. So by that metric, it's clear that science fiction is an important genre. But when you go to the gods of academe of literature, which is one of the more sort of culturally held, it's like, you know, when we want to go highbrow, we think of the we think of literature and critical theory, the university system of of, of you know writers and and, and 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 literature professors. Science fiction is considered a lesser genre by that sector of our culture, and that lack of respect is curious to me. Because as Neil Gaiman said in his interview, science fiction is a genre of ideas, and it really is. And more than that, and perhaps specifically because it's considered a lesser genre, it acts as this Trojan horse. And this was a constant refrain that my guests 
kept mentioning is that science fiction can bypass people's normal partisan filters. And a good example, let's say, is uh, a show like 24. So 24 is an exciting adventure show, but if you really want to examine its politics, it's clear that its politics lean slightly towards the right. That doesn't mean it's less enjoyable, but we can understand that. Let, and then if you look at something like Battlestar Galactica, whose politics clearly lean way into the left, uh, as do the politics of Star Trek uh, and The Expanse, they're dealing with really complicated issues of class, of unionization, of personal autonomy, of what government means. All of these subjects got tackled by shows like The Expanse and Battlestar Galactica in deep and perhaps more complicated ways than, 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 uh, than a genre that tried to do it straight up. Uh, and it gets people talking. It gets them watching. And that's, to me, a really, that, that, that's a net positive for culture when you're entertaining ideas like that and really, and really considering them. Yeah. Well, speaking of Battlestar Galactica, one of the people you interviewed was Ron Moore. And he was making the point that I thought was interesting was that he thought a lot of the bias against science fiction was uh, anti-intellectualism. That It comes out of the same reason why kids who are good at math get bullied in school, that people, you know, that there's just this, this hostility to math and science and geekiness in the culture generally. Well, I... I also think that science fiction, it's possible that it's anti-intellectualism. And I, I, I consider that there's, there's also that being a language of ideas, being a genre of ideas, I mean, it's a place where a lot of us geeks found real solace in our burgeoning intellects, right? So at 14 and 15, when I started reading Stanislaw Lem, and then discovered Harlan Ellison and, and Kurt Vonnegut and, you know, other writers that would go on to shape the way that I think, um, you know, the, yeah, there was a way in which, look, reading is not something that you advertise that you do a ton of when you're in high school. It's not highly thought of. Um, so it's funny, right? Like as a teenager, I think it is anti-intellectualism, but as an adult, it, I don't think you could call it anti-intellectualism within the university system. It's more like, I think it's more like it's a genre that it's considered like, I feel like critical theory views science fiction as closer to uh, romance novels than literature, because it's something a lot of us also read for deep pleasure. Um, and look, to be honest, there's, shit tons of science fiction that has some great ideas that are super poorly executed from a writing standpoint. But I think that exists across any genre. Well, that's sort of, that's a point that Nettie, what you were just saying is a point that Nettie Okorafor makes that people obviously love science fiction so much and are having so much fun reading it that there's this sort of puritanical attitude of, well, it can't be important if people are having that much fun with it. Right. Um, and, it, again, it's an inter it's interesting how we prioritize our pleasures as a culture, isn't it? I mean, you know, I'm always fascinated by the difference of the body types between um, uh, high fashion models and porn stars. And I don't know what that says, except that the, my inkling is, is that as a culture, we feel slightly guilty about the things that give us pleasure. Yeah. Okay, so I have I have one theory that I want to run by you for why I think that fantasy and science fiction is viewed 
uh, with a lack of respect. Because when you think about it, fantastical stories are, have always been um, sort of the most important stories in any culture, going back through religions and mythology and history. And then we have this period in the modern era where suddenly people don't respect it anymore. And I have this theory that it has to do with visual representations of it, because it seems to me that a lot of this this lack of respect comes from people not actually reading the words, which they never do, but looking at the covers of pulp magazines or looking at the cheesy special effects in early movies and just comparing, you know, if, if a realistic movie is set in New York, you can film it in New York and it looks great because you're actually in New York, whereas if it's set on... Mars, it's made out of cardboard and it looks cheesy. And so people just come to associate these sort of cheesy, cheap, uh, tawdry kind of imagery with the genre. Hmm. So if I'm going to recapitulate that back, in a way, what you're saying is like, we build religion as a way of making sense of the world. And we build these fantastical stories, which, even if you're not religious, make wonderful allegories for understanding the world. Uh, but then at a certain point, culturally, we, we learn enough that it's time to put away childish things, perhaps. Is that what you're saying? And so that the, the, the literature or the, the culture of, of performance that yields these fantastical stories is, is considered sort of the, the, the language of youth even a youthful culture or a youthful civilization, whereas the more advanced uh, is looking for subtler pleasures. Is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, that's a that's a totally legitimate point. I don't think that's really what I'm saying. I mean, I think I'm saying more that people, you know, when you tell a fantastical story in words, it has just as much authority or just as much power as any other story told with words. Whereas when you have to start putting it on a screen, uh, then you start running into budget problems. And since uh, visual media is so dominant in our culture, as opposed to words, uh, people form their opinions about something that they've never read, just based on these very superficial images that they're that they come across. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting, but I see the same. I see the same. Uh, the same bias even in film. I mean, if you look at Academy Award winners, it's very rare that a fantasy or science fiction movie makes it all the way to even be nominated for Best Picture. I mean, you know, Return of the King notwithstanding, um, there's very few fantasy and science fiction movies that have won Best Picture or Best Director over the course of the Oscars. So the bias seems to exist um, kind of in, in literature and in film in many of the media that we take that we that we uh, uh, enjoy right but see what, what i think is that as the special effects get better and better that that view will will fade away right that that, that science fiction will stop being associated with cheesy visuals and people will be able to just like appreciate the story for you know not be distracted by unconvincing visuals and that that and i think that's what we're seeing that there's been this huge shift in the acceptance of science fiction ever since 1977 and star wars and I think it's because yeah. the special effects start getting really sub substantially better at that point. And I, I, I think so, I, I have a counterpoint to that. And by the way, I love talking about this on this level. I have a counterpoint to that, which is um, Stanley Kubrick and Tarkovsky were doing sophisticated, complicated science fiction long before Star Wars. Um, and also in 19 in the early 80s, I think you had an interesting backlash to the bubblegum science fiction of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And I don't mean that as a, as a pejorative at all. I just think of 
Lucas and Spielberg as populist science fiction storytellers. And I think the counter to that in the early 80s was Ridley Scott with Alien and Blade Runner. Um, uh, You had uh, The Thing. Um, These were hard, R-rated, rough movies that also existed within science fiction. And I think built a more comprehensive genre. And I think actually, to your point, that's also happening again right now. We have, uh, we have the example of Deadpool going into, you know, being an ex- uh, a, a, a higher budget movie than usually goes to a hard R. And I'm here to tell you that Alien, sorry, that Blade Runner 2049, while I can't talk and won't talk about any of the specifics, I've seen it. And it is as lyrically allegorical and metaphorical as any piece of literature I have ever read. And again, I feel like is providing a tonic to the Guardians of the Galaxies and the Marvel and DC films in terms of being a a darker uh, attack on uh, on a genre to illustrate uh, other parts of our culture. And I'm really excited by that. I'm really excited that Blade Runner 2049 is an R-rated complex science fiction movie with a giant budget. I feel like when we're telling stories from both sides of that fence, because I love Guardians of the Galaxy too. I saw it three times in the theater (laughs) and I love the Marvel movies and I love Wonder Woman and I love Star Wars. All that stuff deeply, deeply pleasurable to me. But I also think going into the darker realms of that is really important. And things like, look, I had huge problems with Ex Machina, uh, but I'm really glad it got made and I want more movies like that. Well, right. And and I'm saying I can see, you know, a movie like Blade Runner 2049 or Ex Machina or um, Arrival, something like that, you know, being competing on a even footing for Oscars in the future as, you know, people start becoming more accepting of fantasy and science fiction. You know, people of our generation oh, start. Look, 100 percent. I mean, if Blade Runner 2049 does not win for best cinematography, there is no justice in the world. Um, it's also an amazing script. The performances are phenomenal. And the directing is, again, as good as anything that I've seen in film. I really uh, like uh, I was so provisionally excited. And now having seen it, I can't wait to see it again. Like, I feel like we're at this culturally great moment where. Uh, so I think about what's happening in special effects right now in science fiction as akin to what was happening with graphic design in the early 90s. You know, at the advent of the first desktop computers, all of a sudden processes, which when I was working in graphic design in the 80s, cost hundreds of dollars to lay out type on a page, went to pennies. Um, we suffered through at least a decade of some of the worst graphic design that's ever been perpetrated on our culture. I mean, the early Mondo <laughs> 2000 and Wired magazine in its first few years was brave and bold and sometimes unreadable. Um, but with Again, over time, designers matured. They understood how to use all of these tools and when to use them and not to use them all on every page. And I feel like with CG, we're seeing the same kind of uh, backlash and return to form where, you know, at a, at, in the beginning, the filmmakers are like, we have every tool and we can use them all. And we end up with some of the early Cars videos. Um, and then they refine themselves and realize we don't have to use all these tools. We can (laughs) use them just enough to tell great stories. So there's a lot less CG in Blade Runner 2049 than you would expect. 
Um, you know, part of that is the budget allowed them to build big sets. But the other part is that Denis is really good at using the effects in a sophisticated way, and he's not over enamored of them. And there's a lot of directors like that now. John Favreau is one. Neil Blomkamp is one. They love using special effects, but they know how to use them judiciously simply to tell the story. So maybe this is all a way of saying, you know, like in the beginning of a technology, the tools are so exciting, they tend to usurp the story. But the things that really last culturally are the ones where the story is, is paramount. Yeah. I'd like and to that, go. And that actually, that actually, sorry, just to return to the podcasts, that really was the constant refrain of the, of the, uh, uh, of the artists and wonderful creators and storytellers that I interviewed was it's all about the story. If the story doesn't resonate, it's not going to, you're not going to like the movie. It, it, you know, it's, a, it, it's not about the genre. It's about the story. It's, it's about the characters and the journey that they're going through. Yeah. I'd like to go back to a point you made just a little bit ago about how um, anti-science fiction attitudes within academia couldn't be anti-intellectualism because academia is so intellectual. But I don't think that that's true. I think it is a form of anti-intellectualism. I'm just reading now a biography of Harlan Ellison, who you mentioned earlier, and there's a anecdote in it where a um, a, a friend of his, an associate of his, tried to give the um, the head of the L.A. Review of Books or Chicago Review, Review of Books or something, a copy of one of Ellison's books. And the guy said, he took one look at it and said, oh, this is that sci-fi crap and threw the book across the room. And right. I, I have to say that that kind of refusal to even read a book, to, to pass judgment on a book that you haven't even read, it has to be some form of anti-intellectualism. And I do think that there is... Um, you know, like that nobody is more mean toward people below them in the social hierarchy than people just one step above them. Right. And I think that mm -hmm. the sort of like English major drama kids got picked on by the jocks or whatever, and they turn around and pick on the math geeks and the science geeks in turn in a anti-intellectual way. Um, hmm. and, and the two cultures battle within academia, you know, has to be seen in some level as an expression of that. That's curious. I mean, look, I, I too gravitate towards the simple stories of the jocks versus nerds. I mean, but I, I, I resist terms like anti-intellectualism, maybe because I think it's more about factionalism. Um, and to be, to be perfectly honest, my uh, level of engagement with what academia thinks of science fiction exists from a conversational level. This is not something that I have deeply researched. So, you know, I, I'm sure there are people who are taking a deep look at this, specifically within and without academia. Uh, there are writers like China, Mel Melville, that's how you pronounce it? Uh, um, Mieville, yeah. Mieville, yeah, that are, that, that are considered literature at the same time as their science fiction. Ted Chang is definitely um, pushing deeply into important literature uh, at the same time as he writes science fiction. Um, so there are inroads being made, but maybe it is simply that the fiefdoms of critical theory, um, which have always been there, are, are the fences get built higher as, as, you know, it's almost like it's almost like the hipster disease, right? Like, oh, I was into these guys before, but now that everyone's into them, fuck them, I don't want it. I don't want to be part of it. 
Yeah, well, I actually have done a lot of research on this. And um, academia, I have to say, is changing a lot in uh, English departments, I think, are becoming much more friendly toward fantasy and science fiction. But it's really in creative writing departments still that there's just an unbelievable level of hostility. And I've been trying mm -hmm. to find programs where you could go and, you know, have people help you write space opera or epic fantasy or things like that. And there are maybe a handful in the world that I'm aware of. And I would love to be proven wrong, but that's, I've, I've done, you know, I've done some serious research and I'm not finding a ton of them. That's fascinating. And, and disheartening really, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's a shame because we're the poorer for it, but this has also been a fight that's been going on forever. Um, and my example for this is Raymond Chandler. Um, when Raymond Chandler was in his early forties, he got fired from being an accountant at an oil company and decided to finally take up the thing he'd always wanted to do, which was writing. And when he did, he didn't naturally gravitate towards pulp fiction. He specifically looked at genres of literature and he chose one that fulfilled two key aspects for him. One was that it was an American genre, and two was that it had not been discovered and spoiled, in his words, by critical theory. Hmm. He, wanted, he wanted to write outside the purview of academia, and he chose Pulp Fiction in order to do that. And fascinatingly, he still has not been, after all these years, and his five books are so fucking important, to our culture and to writing still has not been taken super seriously by, by uh, American academia. And this is like, so he saw this in the forties and here we are that almost 70 years later. And it's still, it's still a problem. I mean, to me, that sounds like it's a problem specifically within a culture that does not take, uh, 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 that does not shift very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to another subject, because I do want to ask you about one, another um, thing that came up in a lot of the interviews that you did is the Turing test. And mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised how many that the, I don't th remember anyone saying that the Turing test is kind of meaningless, which would be my position. Um, I don't know. Do you think that because because I would say that the Turing test is not very meaningful because it's based on the idea that whether you can fool somebody um, tells you something about whether a machine is conscious or something, whereas it's actually pretty easy to fool human beings. And so I don't think that being a, you know, the question of whether you can fool somebody is, tells you too much about whether something is conscious or not. Mm -hmm. um, I go back and forth on the Turing test. I think right now my feeling about it is that it is a, a, a totally important exercise to consider when thinking about what it means to be intelligent what it means to be sentient and, and, and this idea, you know, it addresses a specific aspect of it, which I think is important. And that is, I have no idea if a rock is conscious because I can't be a rock and if consciousness may exist on a level and on a plane that I cannot comprehend. And since I can't rule that possibility out, I can't ever know that, but I can interact with something else that might be sentient like a call center robot. And if it fools me into feeling like I have engaged in a conversation with another sentient being, then it has definitely passed some test for sentience. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's sentient, but it means that it has climbed at least a couple of rungs up that 
latter. Right. I guess I would just say, I mean, at some philosophical level, we can never know whether even other people are sentient. Um, sure. But we can say, well, I'm sentient and other people have seem to have brains like mine. So I'm just going to assume that they are. Um, whereas we, we just on a practical level, we can't treat every rock as if it might be sentient, right? Because then we couldn't build houses out of them and things like that, right? That we have to make sure. determinations. And um, I mean, to, to my mind, it, it's not so much of a vexed problem whether a call center machine is sentient or not. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like as sure as I can be that it's not. Um, and I feel the same way about um, Watson, the chess playing computer, or when it wins at Jeopardy. Like I, I, it just seems like any computer system built along the lines that computer systems are built now, no matter how many, uh, how much processing power they give them and how clever their algorithms are for crunching numbers is not ever going to be sentient without some, you know, um, qualitatively different um, development process. Sure. Look, I think that one of the things, one of the ladders that human beings have been climbing for their entire existence is a ladder of understanding how precious consciousness really is. And we realize that there's a full consciousness in front of us. Our morality changes. It changed with, uh, you know, first with other cultures, then it changed with slavery. It changes with uh, our ideas about manufacturing. It changes with our ideas about uh, 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 factory farming of meat that even your staunchest meat eater would rather not eat a chicken that's been farmed and has no wings and no beak and never moves from the moment it's born until the moment it's harvested. Um, you know, even, even the, 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 the harshest, uh, uh, even the greatest apologist for the meat industry realizes that there's suffering going on. Right. And, and it, the, it's fascinating to me, uh, again, I'm going to go back to Blade Runner 2049 because I think of Blade Runner as a terrific, the original Blade Runner, as a terrific meditation on what it means to view the other and to realize that the other might have a full, uh, a full consciousness where we didn't ascribe it. That wonderful Harrison Ford saying, she's a replicant, and then immediately shifting to how can it not know what it is? He has to revert back to his innate um, uh, uh, racism about the replicants. And that's a story that, you know, that allegory is still extant in the new film. And it's, it's even further developed and, and, and further uh, 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 looked at by Villeneuve in the script. Right. And I love Blade Runner. It's possibly my favorite movie, but there was one critique of it, of, of, of Hollywood robots in general that I heard years ago. I wish I could remember who said it, but they said that Hollywood robots can only ever be either killer monsters or an oppressed minority and they can never be machines which i think is what they're much more most likely to be and and mm. my my concern is actually that people are going to that, that that we are so quick as human beings to impart agency even to inanimate objects that we're going to run into lots of problems of people viewing their intelligent acting computers and ai systems as people uh, when they really shouldn't, and that that's going to be more of a problem in the short term than, um, you know, having uh, robot slaves that are being mistreated, even though they are suffering sentient beings. Right. It's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, 
you know, as soon as we leave the uncanny valley with our robots, how we respond as, as individuals and as a culture, I think, will say a lot about about our culture, about our culture ultimately. Um, and that is like, are we slowly developing into a culture of empathy and cooperation? Or are we a culture of barbarism at our root? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know which of those two things will win. But um, I do feel like at the point at which robots leave the uncanny valley, uh, some of that's going to become a lot clearer. Well, you mentioned earlier um, this idea of is science fiction kind of the modern day version of religion or sort of a modern iteration of religion. And that's something that came up in your conversations with Kevin Smith and Kevin Kelly, um, which I thought was interesting because that's something I think about a lot and I don't hear a lot of other people talking about it. But what was your impression of what uh, Kevin Smith and Ken Kevin Kelly were saying about science fiction and religion? Well, it's, I, I think it's it has something to do with what you were saying at the beginning of this interview about uh, about fantastical stories. Um, I think that one of the most basic human drives is storytelling, the observing of facts objective observation of facts in the world and placing them in a linear order. That is, hey, if we hide behind this rock, that large beast that comes around that rock every January can be killed more easily if we tie this sharpened stone to the end of a stick and it carves up its insides and then we can eat for the entire spring. That's a story. It's a story that also helps a larger group of people survive for longer. And so I feel like I know that tools are one of the ways humans have separated themselves from most other animals. I also know that as the more we observe of animals, the more we see them like corvids and chimpanzees using tools. I think one of the other ways in which humans are radically differentiated from other species is in storytelling. So far, I don't know. Octopuses may be sharing stories, and so may orca and gray wolves. That may be something else we find out at some point. But that need for stories to help us make sense of the world. So the first example I gave about hunting, that's a, a factual story. But then there's religion, which I think of as important to culture uh, and also allegorical. The Bible is beautiful if you read it as an allegory. So is Carlos Castaneda. Um, and again, these allegories are also the ways in which we make sense of the world. Right. I mean, I'm not religious at all, and I am a big fan of fantasy and science fiction. And so one of my one of the things I think about a lot is could fantasy and science fiction just take the place of religion in society? Because it seems to me that fantasy and science fiction offers a lot of the good things that you would associate with religion you have these the sense of the the numinous and the transcendent and uh, a community and these stories that impart uh, moral lessons and all these things without what i would see as some of the major downsides of religion which is that it very often encourages you to uh believe things that have no evidence of being true and sort of ossifies these ethics that are centuries or millennia old and that are just outdated in my view you know I think that's, it, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I guess I bristle at the idea of replacing. Um, I am someone who has gone from calling myself a staunch atheist to watching the way other atheists behave and wanting to, to dissociate myself from their behavior. Um, I also, as a scientist, the idea that I can say that I'm sure something doesn't exist is not very scientific. Um, 
I so I, I think the best description for me would be agnostic. And as such, again, like I said, I view religious texts as allegories for behavior that at their best can be, again, numinous and transcendent. Um, at their worst, you're right, can be bigoted and immovable and rigid and uh, can hold uh, individuals and entire cultures back. Um, I'm not positive that, uh, that a literature could satisfy that deep need for the transcendent, but I hope it can, because for me, it really has. Uh, I, I, I get that, you know, that transcendence of thinking anything is possible within science fiction, of being transported to a place is a really important part of my life. And I've gotten a tremendous amount from it over the years, not just out of entertainment, but also about thinking about the ways in which I am a person, a father, a husband, a friend, uh, a citizen. Right. And, and I guess, I mean, I don't, I know a lot of atheists and I don't know anyone who would say, I know for sure X doesn't exist. But I think that sort of the way I think of it is that we have to, is that the best approach to take is to make sure that you're certainty about any proposition is as proportional as you can make it to the evidence for that proposition. And <laughs> that's a lovely way to put it. And it seems like every religion that I've encountered um, says that you should be more certain of certain propositions than the evidence warrants. And it just seems to me that that's not mm -hmm. a, the best approach to interpreting reality. I would totally agree. Um, and I do think that the best science fiction uh, engenders a healthy respect for uh, for for rigorous science at the same time as being awake to the possibilities of the unknown. Well, right. And there are a lot of religious science fiction authors, and I think we should always be open to all possibilities. And I think one of the, I mean, what, my sort of personal philosophy is sort of science plus imagination, and you want as much of both of them as you can sort of get your hands on. And the mm -hmm. imagination is is just as important as the science. Absolutely. I, I totally agree because there, I mean, you know, the, the history of scientific exploration is rife with things that we were sure of, like the ether that turn out not to exist. And, uh, you know, the ability to change, I, I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. Science adjusts its views based on the evidence. And there's nothing that pushes us forward in a more comprehensive way than being awake to having our minds changed. It's also, as, 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 a, as a human being, one of the most difficult things. It's hard for me to change my mind. It's hard for anybody to change their mind. We don't like change as, as human beings. It's a weirdly universal um, axiomatic feature of being human. Uh, so it's, it's both something we resist and it's completely necessary for our survival. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then another thing I really wanna to talk to you about is you know my favorite show on television is The Expanse. And I know mm -hmm. you're also a big fan of The Expanse, and I'm really want, I really want it to continue for years to come, and I'm really afraid that it's not going to. And I just want to know, what can we do, do you think, to, make, to do everything we possibly can to make sure we get more Expanse? <laughs> well, I mean, one of, the great, I, one of the things that I'm happiest about at The Expanse is that it's at a network like Sci-Fi which I think deeply understands the need for that kind of rigorous science fiction, that hard science fiction and the place that it can occupy in the world. Um, I think that, you know, when we, when we look at, pro so 
that was one of my favorite things I learned during these interviews is that um, Narain Shankar, who's the showrunner for The Expanse, and Ron Moore, who was the showrunner for Battlestar Galactica and now Outlander, both came of age in the writer's room for Star Trek Next Generation under the leadership of Gene Roddenberry, who really engendered a familial atmosphere for both his production crew and his performers um, on Next Generation, on the original series. Um, those cast and crew are family they are still family, and the same goes for the cast and crew of Battlestar Galactica and The Expanse. So that is a lesson I take deeply uh, moving forward as a producer of content, as a storyteller. Um, to me, uh, you know, the, 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 the history of, of, of creativity is rife with the lone creator who themselves has a singular <laughs> vision that gets enacted at, against all other odds. Um, and yet in these shows from Roddenberry and Shankar and more, we have storytelling that doesn't come from a monolithic genius. We have storytelling that comes from a family. So it's deeply imbued and invested with empathy and the qualities that I think makes us better as a species and as a culture. Um, so to me, I go looking for properties where that is the case. The Marvel family, you know, is definitely a family. I can't believe it, but, you know, a company as giant as Disney really seems to be investing and imbuing that franchise with as much love as it can, both, you know, in terms of the creativity, it's, it's directors get to explore and the, 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 the product of it. So, you know, the thing that we can do is we can enjoy shows like The Expanse and we can keep on shouting to the rafters how great this product is. Um, I will tell you a, a one example of how great a family The Expanse is. Um, I, had traveled, I had traveled to Toronto to spend a week on the set of The Expanse. And I forgot, I can't even remember what it was. It was like a razor or something like that. And... I mentioned that I didn't have it, but I didn't have time to get one before I got back to my hotel that night. And one of the writers, Ty Frank, mentioned this to Stephen Strait, the star of The Expanse, who turned out to live across the street from my hotel. <laughs> and so half an hour after I got back to my hotel room, there was a knock on the door, and there was Stephen with the thing that I <laughs> And I was like, that's a family. Right. That's beautiful. I, that would just made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, you did a, you know, that you did that cameo on The Expanse. And I was just curious, mm -hmm. kind of what was going through your head? Are you worried about your acting ability? Or are you just having fun or just what's that like as an experience? Oh, the answer is all of the above. It's terrifying <laughs> and really, 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 really fun. Um, like I said, uh, The Expanse is a family from the scenic painters all the way up to the showrunner. Um, and they made me feel incredibly welcome and were incredibly warm with me. Uh, and I also got to do a cameo on the set of Blade Runner 2049 in the, the second film about Sapper, uh, the Dave Bautista character. Um, and this was me in, in, in those, both of those cases talking to the producers and saying, I want to tell stories from these sets. I can tell better stories if you... Uh, embed me as deeply as possible into these sets. And then I can really help the audience understand from both sides of the fence, having been in production and being on screen talent, um, how these stories get told and how 
the deep creativity of everybody in the process, from the scenic painters all the way up to the showrunner, is vital for the storytelling. Uh, and so for me, it's like a fantasy camp day, but it's also a way in which I get to take both my professional life and my fandom and put them both on parade to help people see how this stuff really gets made. Yeah, no, that's really, really awesome. Uh, well, when you mentioned uh, Ron Moore and also you interviewed Jonathan Frakes, who both have that Star Trek connection, and they were kind of speculating about how the new Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, was going to turn out. I was just curious, have you seen that yet? Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about it? I have not had a chance. This has been such a crazy week. I've been seeing the response to the new Star Trek Discovery, and I'm really excited about it. I got to spend some time with a few of the writers when I was at San Diego Comic-Con. Um, but I, I, I think I will get to watch the new Star Trek in probably two days. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's how busy I am right now. Um, but I, look, I just, the more Star Trek there is in the world, the better the world is. Because I think that Gene Roddenberry's original vision still holds that, uh, that a utopic vision of humanity in which our needs are met uh, and we can use the extra mental space given by the fact that we've answered hunger and shelter and uh, safety for all the citizens of the earth. And now we can go start to explore other cultures is a beautiful vision of humanity. And at the same time, as I was saying, it's important to have that darker vision to counteract the bubblegum popular culture vision. It's also really important to have that empathic vision. And that's what Star Trek has always brought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this press release, it also talks about this Sci-Fi Channel advisory board that you're on. I was wondering, has that, mm -hmm. has that convened at all yet, or what's going on with that? It has not convened. Um, I know most of the other members of the, of the advisory board, and I think, it again, it speaks really deeply to the fact that Sci-Fi is putting its, its, <laughs> it's putting its mouth where its money is. <laughs> um, I, I, they're really sci-fi is clear that they are a network that's as much about fandom as it is about narrative because of how, you know, you scratch the surface of Ron Moore or David X Cohen and you'll find a fan. That's also universal in all 15 of my interviews. And I probably could have done 60 and I would find the same exact thing. And sci-fi seeks to be a place for both the creator and the fan. And I'm, I, when I look at that list of advisors, I see where they're going with it, and it excites me. Yeah. Do you think you'll do any more of these um, origin stories interviews? I, I do not know. I would love to. Um, that, of course, requires some scheduling and negotiation between me and Sci-Fi. But, uh, you know, up till now, all of the scheduling and negotiation that we've done has been absolutely delightful. I found them to be an excellent partner to produce this with. Um, I, I love everybody that I deal with at Sci-Fi, and so I really hope that this continues. I do not know if it will. Yeah. All right, so then I have some questions for you from listeners. So Gary Flood says, I'm interested in if he thinks he's getting more political, his Twitter work suggests so. Uh, what do you think about that? Ah, um, yes, I am getting more political. Uh, I view it as really important for me as a citizen to talk about the aspects of politics that I am interested in. And I am less interested in Republican versus Democrat uh, than I am in, uh, in taking care of my fellow humans. I am a upper middle class born white male. 
Um, I have been given the game of life with all the settings on easy, as my friend John Scalzi points out. Um, and it is really important to me as an empathic human to, to take care of those in my culture that can't take care of themselves or that need a leg up or that need help. That's me being a person. That's what I view personally as being a person. I know that not everyone agrees with me. And that's okay. Not everyone has to agree with me. But part of me being a person is that I need to speak up when I see injustice. And I see a, uh, I see a White House right now that is promoting a view of the world that is bifurcated. It is based on us versus them. And that saddens me and it sickens me. And I want to respond to it. I'm very rigorous in how I choose to make that response. And that is, my goal is to express myself politically in the politest way possible. I want to speak only in the way that I would if the person I'm responding to was standing in front of me. Uh, and I compare everything that I say to that. I probably send one tweet for every 10 that I compose <laughs> because in my anger and my ire, I write lots of things that I don't tweet. Um, because I can see that I'm being, in my, in my emotional response, divisive or exclusionary, and I don't want to be. So I, I work really, really hard to be inclusive. I know that a lot of my fans from Mythbusters um, don't agree with me politically. I know that a lot of the tested viewers that watch me on, online every week don't necessarily agree with me politically, and that's, that's okay. I like to imagine, though, that if we were sitting at dinner, we could agree on some basic precepts of how we take care of each other as a culture. And that's the kind of conversation that I try and engender in my social media. Well, right. I mean, it seems like there's just a lot of things going on with the current administration that ought to transcend politics. I mean, you know, like if, if you want to say that if you want to have a, a, a debate about whether we should raise or lower the minimum wage or whatever, that's something it seems to me that reasonable people can disagree on. But, you know, the last two episodes of this podcast were sponsored by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And so this is fresh in my mind. But when it comes to things like scientists are issuing reports and those reports, people are going through those reports and crossing out the word climate change because they don't want to hear yep. what the scientists have to say. I don't see how anyone yep. can justify that on any level. I do not either. And um, that is perhaps... Uh, I, it, it completely mystifies me and it totally saddens me. And that is pushing us back as a culture. I personally feel like the backlash against science that is currently happening is a death rattle of a certain way of looking at science. I don't view this as a ladder to perdition. I view it as the dying gasp of a antiquated way of navigating the world based on an almost Calvinist uh, idea that, well, you know, I'm fine, so I don't know. I, I reposted a comic strip that I found of, of two owls responding, to, uh, talking to each other about uh, somebody calling their friend a hawk a predator. And they were like, that's just ludicrous. He's not a predator. He's one of our best friends. Mr. Mouse clearly has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and that is what we're talking about here. I really feel like th this myopic view of I've got mine, F you, uh, is really, really damaging. And I think that informs this climate debate. I think that, I think that some of these people designing climate change, they absolutely know what's happening. But they also 
feel strongly that in any upheaval of world culture, they'll end up on top so they don't give a shit. And that is the most cynical and upsetting thing that I can imagine. And I see it happening. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we'll one more question. We'll end this on a, a little bit more of an upbeat note. So Ted Vishen. <laughs> okay, good. Ted Vishen says, uh, does he feel that TV science shows improve scientific literacy? Mythbusters was a favorite in our house when, while my son was growing up. Look, there are, yes, I think you really can. Uh, I think Brain Games was another fantastic example. There's a lot of stuff on the BBC and other countries too. One of the important things though is that Mythbusters did not set out to be a science show. We did not set out to be an educational show. Um, it is because Jamie and I are both deeply scientific in our approach to the world that the show took the tack that it did. Um, it was baked into the DNA from the start. Not by us, really, even. The, 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 the show was the creation of an Australian documentary filmmaker. Um, but that DNA, from, uh, which, which co-joined with the way Jamie and I looked at the world, um, fundamentally altered the course of that show. And it fundamentally altered our brains over the course of the show. Uh, I think at the very beginning of making Mythbusters, Jamie and I would have told you, we're not scientists. We don't know what the hell we're doing. And we both finished our 14-year tenure on the show realizing, no, nope, we are actually scientists. This, is, this show turned us into scientists and gave us a scientific way of looking at problem solving and looking at the world. And it, it fundamentally changed me as a person, and I'm forever grateful for that. All right. Well, I would love to keep talking to you because there's a lot of other <laughs> interviews still we could uh, that you did that we could uh, get into, but we're all out of time. And so I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Adam Savage and this new podcast. It's called Sci-Fi 25 Origin Stories. So, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. I really appreciated the conversation. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Adam Savage for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including David B. Hallbrook, who writes, The most comprehensive science fiction and fantasy pop culture podcast. This podcast has been my go-to for my Monday morning commute for several years now. My favorite episodes are the author interviews, but the pop culture panel discussions are great also. I have been introduced to many new authors, movies, and television shows that I would likely never have stumbled upon without this podcast. So big thanks again to David B. Hallbrook for that great review. Special thanks as well to Benjamin Wallen and Andy, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.